Welcome to Echo Offstage, Theater Women Speak. Echo Theater Dallas has been amplifying women's voices on stage since 1998. Now we invite you offstage, behind the curtain, for an intimate conversation with theater's most influential and innovative women. I'm your host, Katherine Whiteman, and I'm here with Ann Timmons. Welcome, welcome. The list says, Anne, playwright, director, actor, and acting teacher, but those are the bullet points. Fill in the picture for us a little bit. Well, I reached playwriting after a decades-long journey as an actor. I got my MFA at the University of Illinois, and I had a really great time doing all that Master of Fine Arts acting stuff and really getting, you know, into the nitty-gritty. This was after I had done a year in London at the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama. So I had the British Conservatory training and then also the American MFA version. And it was a really rich and enriching experience. But what I learned from that was that everything starts with the word, right? The word on the page is where it all begins. And so I thought, you know, at some point, maybe I want to be a playwright. And I had an opportunity to write a one-woman show for myself uh, that I premiered off-Broadway several years ago. And then I toured that show around, and that was really a lot of fun. And I realized that I liked creating this world, you know, but I also liked working with other people (laughs) more than doing a solo show. Um, And so I think that it's fascinating what playwrights do. You, You create a new world, you know, it's kind of born in your mind, but then you deliver it to other artists and you trust that they will inhabit it with life and breath and embody your ideas. And when they do, and then they deliver these ideas to the audience, it's quite wonderful. Okay, I want to dig in a little bit here because you're an actor and playwright. You came to playwriting through acting. Was it your work on the One Woman Show? Did you say that that was it that sort of made that bell chime for you that maybe I want to be on the creating part of this? That was part of it. Um, I, I really liked being the person sort of at the beginning of the process Uh, that was, it's very different from being an actor where you're sort of the last person hired, right? Um, the playwright is the, the, at the very beginning and the actor is coming in, you know, last. Uh, I really enjoyed both. Part of this was necessity. The older you get as a woman, the fewer roles there are available for you. So I really wanted to create those roles. I wanted to write those roles, maybe not for myself to play, but for other women to play. And I really wanted to see the stories of people I knew on stage. I also uh, have always been interested in historical plays, which you all know because of It's My Party there at Echo Theater uh, that I'm so excited about the Zoom production of. Because history is usually written by the winners. We have a lot of male-dominated stories on our stages. Any history plays tend to be stories that revolve around men. And I'm really interested in seeing, you know, what's the underside of that history? What's the story that's not getting told? And so delving into that and really, you know, getting your hands dirty and getting in all that 
nuance and and uh, places that it may take you that you didn't think it would because truth is stranger than fiction every time, right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And, and let me speak for every female theater artist. Thank you for writing roles for women <laughs> because it's very important that our voice is heard as well. Yeah. You wrote about an extraordinary woman, Charlotte Perkins Gilman. Tell us how, what was the genesis of that show for you? You know, I was doing an artist in residency at the University of Illinois, my alma mater. This was several years after I'd graduated, but I'd kept in touch with some people there. And an opportunity arose for me to do an artist in residency there. And while I was there, I took advantage of the great library they had and also my connection with some faculty members there. And I asked faculty members that I knew in the English department and in the theater department, the theater history professors, to put me in touch with other professors of American history, of history, of English, and just have a conversation with them about whose story what one woman did they think deserved to have her story be told and, and to come to people on stage? And uh, a lot of them said, both from the history faculty as well as the English faculty, Charlotte Perkins Gilman. And I said, that is so interesting because I'm not even sure I know her. You know, and then I started reading more about her and what an incredible person she was. She was one of feminism's foundational foremothers. And she died in 1935, and she lived an incredible life. She was a lecturer and an essayist and a writer and a very prolific writer, I might add. She was just a firebrand of a woman. She had very provocative, revolutionary ideas at the time about women should be equal to men, should be paid the same as men. Uh, she wrote a book that was translated very quickly into 17 languages called Women and Economics. And she believed very firmly that, that women could actually survive without men. She wrote a fantastic futuristic novel called Her Land, about a land where only women lived and could reproduce parthenogenetically and didn't need men and everything was happy and, you know, it was very idyllic. Um, she wrote so much. Uh, I could still be reading her work 20-some years later because she just was so prolific. She wrote so much. And that's a gift to a playwright, right? To have source material that you can really dive into and sink your teeth into. And to be able to use her words when you bring her back to life for those of us who know nothing about her is a wonderful thing because you've got her authentic voice there. So you toured this play for not one year, or two years. You toured it for quite a while. Tell us about that experience. How long were you moving around the country with this show? I was touring that off, off and on, not nonstop, obviously, for 16 years, um, mostly around Women's History Month, which is March. And there were many years when uh, from the end of February to sort of the middle of April, I might come home to our home in Virginia for a day uh, to sort of, you know, refresh my costume and do some laundry, and then I'd head off to go someplace else. So I did this when my children 
uh, were young, it got a little more difficult as they got older <laughs> because they needed more supervision. But yeah, I did. I did it for 16 years off and on. And, and I played many of the uh, locations in Washington where I was living outside of Washington at the time. I came to do many of the federal uh, agencies. I think one of my favorites was the Drug Enforcement Agency. I did this show for, they have a lovely theater, amazingly enough. Uh, but I also got to do it for NASA and the NIH. So I, I can say that I have done this for rocket scientists and brain surgeons. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you have. <laughs> Another feather in your cap. So I, I want to ask you, because as the person who is performing this piece and also creating it, when you sit with something for that period of time, you learn more and more as you go along. Did the piece change for you over time? Did you adapt it at all for the different kinds of audiences? Were you with, Or did you, you know, just bring the script to life with the same words, but in different ways. I brought the script to life with the same words as much as I could. Sometimes memory plays funny tricks and they weren't all the same words. <laughs> um, but the thing I found that was so interesting, and this was asked to me by a graduate student, I, I, I would do workshops with this show when I was on the road, particularly going to universities. And I was talking to a graduate acting class once and one of the graduate students asked me, how could I keep it fresh? you know, performance after performance. And I said, ah, you should maybe ask, how do I keep it consistent? Because every performance I was on a different stage, in a different city, with a different sort of setup, it was very in the moment because I had never performed on this particular stage before. Because of course, you don't have time to do a full out rehearsal when you get there. You just sort of set your things up and go. So no, I, I had the same script every time. And that was probably the only thing that was the same, that and my costume, because um, everything else would change. <laughs> <laughs> I, wanted, I have to tell you, the reason that I asked you that question, I have a, a piece that I've done for about 20 years on Sojourner Truth. <gasps> I love and it. And I do it for kids. It's mm -hmm. um, it's typically for eighth graders for the for the past twenty years, and over the years the show has changed because of the questions that some of the kids have asked oh, me. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And it's been wonderful to see the light bulb come on for them. And well, hey, did she do this? And what happened then? And, and I had to go and do dig and do a little bit more research. Um, the, of course, her words in the show don't change because they were given to us in history. But the shape of the show has changed so because of the questions that the kids yeah. ask me. And it's, yeah, I, yeah. I love that. I'm, I'm always fascinated at the way that young people's minds work. I sort of remember how mine worked worked and mm, strange place, <laughs> strange place in there. But it, what it's, was it's like, what, and, and the reason I knew that, that my, my bookings were dropping off anyway. And then I knew I came home from one gig and I knew that I was no longer going to get any bookings because the questions were, why is she so angry? Why are you so angry? Hmm. And I That's thought interesting. these young, but I, I, I could see the trend. This was during, yeah. this was during, um, the W administration um, and people were thinking that women's issues had been solved. You know, do you remember those times? Before, I do. Yeah. And I, I said, there's going to be, there's going to be this, this tsunami of rage. I said to my husband, there's going to be a tsunami of rage when these women turn 30. Mm -hmm. and we have seen that now. Yes, we have. Haven't we? How about But they that? all say, how come the older generation didn't? And I want to say, I was standing <laughs> on a stage and you were asking me why I was so angry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. There's a play in that too, Ann there Timmons. There is a play in that too. You're right. You're right. Oh my gosh. <laughs> 
So let's let's spend a little bit of time talking about the pipeline playwrights because we've got this situation where you're a wonderful playwright, you've toured this show for 16 years, you get to a certain age, and where's the work? So you do what smart women do. You created. That's right. We decided we were going to get our stuff out there. Uh, we decided on the name Pipeline Playwrights. We are five women playwrights in Northern Virginia. But we started writing together uh, in a writing group in about 2015. And we were writing together and encouraging each other's work and having some readings and um, really supportive. And de- we decided that we were going to get our work out into the local and national theater pipeline, which is where Pipeline Playwrights comes from. Because there has been some discussion that there aren't enough women in the pipeline, right? And we thought, well, we are going to get in that pipeline. And so we banded together and we decided we were going to start, hopefully, producing our own plays. Um, So far, we've done two fringe festivals in D.C., and we've had several series of play readings, and we were about to embark on a major fundraising campaign so that we could get enough money to produce fully staged plays, one for each of the playwrights. So that would be five plays. And we were supposed to be in, in the first phase of that fundraising campaign right now. And of course, you know, that didn't happen because our timeline is completely messed up because... We are not sure when we will ever be able to present live theater again. So so we've taken a backseat in terms of um, thinking about fully staged productions. But now we are bringing things to people on Zoom. We are writing roles for older women all the time. And also, you know, some younger women and some men. Uh, but we're really focusing on giving opportunities to older women actors and also giving opportunity for women to see their stories on stage or at this point to see their stories on Zoom. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's what we have right now. However, the fact that you're doing this and that you've been doing it for five years, this COVID thing is terrible, but it's not forever. And the works that you guys produce have the potential to be forever. So my hat is off to you. I think it's a wonderful thing that you're doing. So let me ask you how you are coping with COVID. Obviously, with with Pipeline Playwrights, you've got a completely different circumstances that you're dealing with and, and perhaps in your own writing as well. Well, some of the Pipeliners are actually meeting COVID more head on than I am in in their current writing. I'm, I'm looking at some more uh, other societal issues. I think I'm going to leave it at that because I don't want to spoil the secret of my latest play. But in terms of, you know, it's just COVID's been just really devastating to the theater community. And I moved to New York City uh, a couple years ago after living in the greater D.C. area for 28 years. And I was happy to move back to New York because, of course, there's all this theater here. And I, I met a group of playwrights here right off the bat that I'm writing with. And we've already produced one evening of short plays. And we have plans to do some other evenings of our work and produce them. And, you know, that's all stopped. So it's really, it's really difficult to, to realize that one of the big engines that keeps this city going is just completely dead in the water right now. And so that that casts sort of a pall over every day. Yeah, <laughs> it has most assuredly changed the landscape, not just in, in New York City, but all over the country. And yeah. we 
we're going to be doing some serious regrouping. I am hopeful that we'll see a lot of regrouping coming through the people of our community, the theater community, because what we create for the broader community is is critical. It's necessary. It's like breathing and, you know, blood flowing through your veins. Of course, I'm a little biased, but I do believe that. <laughs> I want to talk about the historical characters that you've written. You said that your work is an exploration of accepted history, which you sort of uh, alluded to earlier, featuring protagonists who upend the status quo. I love that quote. Why do you think you're so drawn to the historical figures? You know, that is such an interesting question. It reminds me of a question that I was asked when I was attending the Dramatists Guild Playwrights Intensive, which is a wonderful program at the Kennedy Center that they run every few years. And uh, Gary Garrison, who was running the program, and he's just brilliant uh, with asking playwrights probing questions. And Gary said, you really have to ask yourself, what is it? that makes you want to write. You have to each have to ask yourself, what is it that makes you need to write? And I was sitting there going, I, what, what is it? What is it? And then about three weeks later, I thought, oh, here's what it is. I can't stand the misunderstanding of history. It makes me crazy when people misquote not literally, but, you know, allude to historical things that never happened or oversimplify the complexities and use that as a kind of shorthand or a crutch or a rationale for what they're doing. And that, that just that just does really gets under my skin. So I think maybe, you know, perverse reason that that is, that's why I'm compelled to write plays. I, I, I really want to get at the truth. I want to, I you know, I want to see what's underneath that, that conventional wisdom, that perceived, that, that thing that everybody knows is true. And I guess the skeptic in me says, is it, is it really? Let's just, let's just look into that, shall we? Shall we? Because <laughs> it's, as you said before, History is written by whoever won. Exactly. And when that's the case, there are always voices that are left out. And there's always the telling of history to further a particular current cause. So that brings me to, we're in the 100th, the centennial of women getting the right to vote in this country. And you've written a wonderful piece that Echo is producing. Let's talk about It's My Party. I'm thrilled that Echo Theater is going to be presenting this Zoom premiere of It's My Party, because Echo has a mission like Pipeline Playwrights to produce work created by women. And when I was contacted by Echo about the possibility of doing this, and I, I went and Googled it, I thought, oh, yay, this is exactly the perfect theater uh, to be doing this production. And I'm, I've uh, met the cast, and they're amazing, and I'm so looking forward to it. Why did you start working on the piece? I started it right after the 2016 election. So I think that's all I need to say about that. But I also had been uh, doing this research on Charlotte Perkins Gilman, doing that play for years and years. Um, I was very much immersed. Charlotte Perkins Gilman actually knew these ladies, right? And it's my party because she died in 1935. So, so she knew pretty much all the women that I write about and it's my party. And in fact, she had had some alliances with some of them over the years in terms of, you know, working together with them to affect political change. And so I I had done a little bit of research into that area already. 
And uh, while I lived in Washington, I became a member of the National Women's Party. And they have the archives of a lot of the papers, all of the papers of the National Women's Party, and many of the journals of uh, the clipping services at the time, of newspaper articles, and just a wealth of historical information. And so I had been sort of dying to get in there anyway and do some research on, I wasn't sure what. And then after this election in 2016, I thought, I I really need to write the play about women getting the vote, because I knew the centennial was coming up as well. And I thought that there's there's a, a, a resonance. There's a resonance here between what we had just gone through in the election of 2016 and what the factions of women who were trying to get the vote for women were experiencing. My personal historical hero is a woman by the name of Sojourner Truth, who was a suffragist, had been enslaved, and was an abolitionist. And she spent a good deal of her time post-Civil War working in the women's rights movement. She pulled away from uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton because of her position on uh, black women getting the right to vote. She did not, she she wouldn't combine the two things. She didn't think it was right to do that, apparently. So let's cut to, you know, the 1900s, the early 1900s. This situation is still happening. You write about those women. You, you write about how a white supremacy had a part in what they were doing. How difficult is it to write about women who were heroes, but not saints? Right. Well, they're human, aren't they? I mean, that's, that's the thing that a dramatist loves to write about is someone who's human, who has flaws, because it's very easy but very boring to write someone who's two-dimensional. There was a comment made to me after reading of It's My Party that I did in Alexandria, Virginia, that was attended by a lot of League of Women Voters officers, local officers, and some former high-ranking national people in that organization. And one of these women I actually knew as a friend of a friend, and she mentioned to me afterwards that she didn't think Carrie Chapman Cat came off looking that good in the play. And she was a little disappointed. And Carrie Chapman Cat, of course, founded the League of Women Voters. And I said, well, I was trying to write a play about all the players in this struggle. And they were real people and they were multifaceted and had competing uh, agendas and they all had different parts of themselves that I thought would be interesting to bring to the stage. My interest was focusing on the conflict between the two major white women's organizations. Um, That is what I focus on, but I did want to bring up very much that they were sort of shutting out their Black sisters who were also organized and very active. And that's a different story um, but these women, these two larger national organizations of white women, for various reasons that they state in the play, you know, rationalized why they were not reaching out and letting their Black sisters help them. It is very interesting to me to talk about the suffrage movement from the position of how women wield power. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> you, 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 you don't get to have power unless you know how to use it. Because if you, right. you, you will abuse it if you don't know how to use it. You know, it's just a, kind of a, a natural thing that happens. So I am, I can't wait to see this show, to see what you've done with that question. <laughs> I want to talk about your latest play, Saltwater Farm. That is one that's being released by Pipeline Playwrights, but you're producing it a little bit differently. So can you talk about that? Sure. We're doing two nights of readings, uh, 
But it's not two nights of readings of the whole play. It's one Tuesday night, August 25th, we are reading Act One. And then the next Tuesday night, September 1st, we're reading Act Two. Because, Catherine, throughout this period since April, when Pipeline has been doing Zoom readings, we've been doing short readings, short little uh, bites, uh, you know, little morsels of works in progress, largely because we didn't have long works in progress to read, but also because once we started doing this and we got feedback from our audience, from our supporters who were tuning in, they said they really appreciated that it was a short evening and that after a day of Zooming, they didn't really want to watch a full-length play, especially since these are works in progress. I mean, this reading that we're doing on August 25th and September 1st is a first public reading. So it's not by any means a fully baked production. Um, and because we want discussion period after that, too, because the kind of feedback that you get after a first reading is so important. And we're recording them and putting them on YouTube. Hopefully, we're going to do that as soon as we can after the August 25th reading. So if people didn't get there, they can see that before they tune in for the September 1st. I love the way you're doing this. And it is it sort of hints at the one silver lining that we do have with this craziness that's going on right now is it has made it imperative that we take advantage of the technology that's available to us. So the upside of that is you're there in Brooklyn and your fellow uh, pipeline playwrights are in Northern Virginia and I can see the work in Texas <laughs> without a plane ticket. <laughs> That's what's so wonderful. My my dad from Ohio has been able to see it. Uh, my in-laws in Maine who, you know, aren't going anywhere, right? These people aren't going anywhere because they're older and they do not want to go anywhere. Uh, several of our pipeline supporters have maybe left the major metropolitan area of Washington, D.C. to go someplace else for the duration of this, or they were someplace else and they got stuck. Uh, and I've had friends from all over the country, my college friends who've dispersed to other towns who, who have said, oh, you know, I wish you could bring your play here. I'd really like to see it. Um, uh, which is always a nice thought, to which I always say, if you know a producer, please let me know. Um, but here we're we're showing it ourselves and we're sharing it with people. And it's not the same as obviously a fully staged production, but it's it's nice. It's nice to get that um, that connection with people who said, oh, yeah, I've, I've really been interested to see your work and now I can. So that's really been a fun thing. And, and we're hoping to keep that up even as we move forward even as theaters reopen at whatever time, we were just talking last night about, you know, the the mandate now we feel to try to reach our remote audience. Because I think there, even after a vaccine is discovered and people start coming back to the theater, there are going to be a certain percentage of people who just won't, you know, because they feel vulnerable. They don't want to take the risk. Um, so I think we're going to have to stay with the whole streaming idea for, you know, forever, but that's okay. Yeah, it adds another I think layer. that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think that it adds another layer and then that then that's an okay layer to add and it may challenge us in, in, in ways that we can't even fathom right this moment. So, so I know that we're going to have listeners who are very interested to know what this saltwater farm play is. Can you just give us a little thumbnail? Well, it's about a family in Maine. Uh, saltwater farm is, is a, a farm that's on the ocean. But it's this lovely house, and it's been in this family for many generations, seven generations. And now, of course, the fortune has dwindled, and the family is on the cusp of losing the farm. 
and the decisions that need to be made and what to do with the farm and who's really at fault and, you know, sibling rivalries and secret past stories come out. And it's um, it's a comedy of manners uh, that also deals with some societal issues. Mm, the intrigue begins. Yes. yes. <laughs> it's wonderful. <laughs> You've spoken in other interviews, and I have faced this myself um, when I am writing uh, in the things that I do. You do have to sometimes kill your babies, is what I say. You say killing your darlings. Kill your little darlings, (laughs) yes, yes. Tell us about the most difficult rewrite you've ever had to do. (gasps) Oh, so many. Um, Well, I th- I'm, I'm thinking of one uh, of a play that I just had read online through the Dramatist Guild um, in July up here, and it's called The Whole is Greater. It used to be called Bigger Than All of Us, uh, and I cut a whole character. I cut a whole character. And that character in the beginning was sort of my colonel, my, my, you know, she, she was the, the touchstone for me in a lot of ways. But then the play grew in a different direction. And, and I realized that having her there just muddied the plot. And, oh, it was very hard. It was hard. To, she, and she, was an, it was, she was a perfectly fine character. And, and the actor who portrayed her in the reading, the original readings, was a lovely young woman who I really like, who I'm actually working out again with in Saltwater Farm. But um, yeah, I had to just excise the whole character. That was hard. That had to be hard because you think I've created this thing that needs to live somewhere, but not in this show. Not in this one, no. And I haven't brought her back in anything. And, and, you know, one of these days I will. But yeah, that was, that was, that was probably the worst. I guess that was killing a big darling, not a little darling. Yeah, that that is a big (laughs) darling. Well, I have thoroughly enjoyed our chat tonight. Thank you so much for your time. Let me ask you as a closing question, who do you admire as an innovative woman yourself? Who do you admire in theater these days? You know, I I was, that's a a tough question. Uh, But the immediately what springs to mind, not one woman, but a group of women. There's a group of women that I am honored to be a part of called The Honor Roll. And The Honor Roll uh, is an advocacy and action group of women plus playwrights over 40 and their allies. Teresa Rebeck, whom I admire enormously, had a group of women to her home in 2018, a group of older women playwrights. And she said, all the women there said, why aren't we getting produced? What's the deal? And the mission statement of Honor Roll states that uh, basically we, uh, we, many of us were discriminated against for sexism when we were younger, and now we're discriminated against with ageism because we're older. And uh, so we're working to, to get rid of um, age limits. There are, there are some age limits for writing opportunities that come up, for competitions. They say emerging writers, but they really mean young writers. And uh, so we're trying to, you know, to break down those barriers because women over 40, many of them didn't have the chance to blossom when they were younger as playwrights. So so that's a group I admire enormously because I think that is such a transgressive thing in a way for this particular group, right? To be going out there and 
kind of shaking the foundations of the theater establishment. Um, so I have enormous respect. It's a collective and there are hundreds of us around the country and trying to get stuff done. Yeah, and bravo for that. When women come back into themselves, usually in their early 40s after they've done the any childbearing that they're going to do if they're going if that's going to be a part of their lives and how important it is for women of that age to be able to reclaim their voices because you sacrifice a lot to be a good parent and I am a parent and I think I was a wonderful mother my boys tell me that all the time but I did lose a lot of my own time to be a good mother so it's critical to me now to to be able to, and one of the reasons I'm so glad I'm involved with Echo. Yeah, yeah. I mean, really, for the women that founded it, had that initial meeting, and the, the women who are leading it now, I'm just full of awe and, and gratitude. Well, Ann Timmons, I am full of awe and gratitude for your time tonight. <laughs> uh, had a delightful time talking with you, and I know that uh, listeners are going to want to find out more about you. Uh, where can they do that and find out about you and the projects that you have coming up? Well, my personal website is conveniently enough www.antimmons.com. And uh, that has my professional work as a communications artist because. When I'm not playwriting, I'm teaching people how to speak and be better communicators. And so there's a lot of information about that on my Ann Timmons website. But also I have some information about my plays. And then more information about my plays can be found on www.pipelineplaywrights.org. And Pipeline Playwrights is the group of uh, five women playwrights who are trying to get our stories into the local and national theater pipeline. And there's all sorts of information there about the Echo Show uh, coming up and also about where you can find out how to register for Saltwater Farm. And uh, hopefully the YouTube link will be up there as soon as we get that <laughs> that YouTube recording edited. Well, you've got a lot going on, and I'm excited to get an opportunity to see not just what we're doing here with Echo Theater, but also with what you're doing uh, going on with Saltwater Farm. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Many thanks to Ann Timmons for that lovely interview. Tune in next time to hear from playwright Rihanna Yazzie. So you will definitely be hearing my cat in the background. Well, I am delighted to welcome her as another <laughs> guest. Can you introduce her for us? Yeah, it is Baby Bear. You've been listening to Echo Offstage, Theater Women Speak. We're a production of Echo Theater in Dallas, Texas, a nonprofit theater dedicated to solely producing works by women. I'm your host, Katherine Whiteman. Our producers are Eric Berg and Jenna Burnett. Our audio engineer is Jonathan Villalobos. Our music is by Len Barnett with Brent Nance. Our executive producer is Kateri Kale, managing artistic director at Echo Theater. Find out more about Echo and our mission at echotheater.org and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Echo Theater Dallas. Find these links and more info about today's guest in the show notes. Going dark. Thank you, Dark. Thank you, Dark. My fellow pay... <laughs> You'd think I could say pipeline playwrights, wouldn't you? <laughs> pipeline playwrights. It's like feminism foundational foremothers. I was so impressed when you did that. I, you know, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>